In today's episode, we discuss Norse and Greek mythology and how they apply today, learning from myth, the shadow self, how to be more mindful, self-awareness, and more. I really think you're going to enjoy today's episode, and as always, if you could please give the show a share, and also, of course, this is going to be huge for us, is go on and leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice. This really helps us with the rankings and to spread the word about the show. So thanks again. Today's show is brought to you by IcePod, finally an affordable, portable, and effective way to get the benefits of cold water immersion in the comfort of your own home. I opted for the Pro Bundle, which includes the ice pod, a water circulating pump, a special insulated lid, and a thermometer to check the temp of your water. Even in Georgia, the ice pod keeps my water between 60 and 70 degrees, and when I load it up with a 36-pack of water bottles that I use and refreeze after each session, I can easily get it around 50 degrees for the perfect cold water immersion experience. Despite being light and portable, the ice pod is super durable and it's the perfect solution for anyone who wants to experience the benefits of cold water immersion without spending thousands of dollars for a home water chiller or trying to DIY your own. Cold immersion can help with recovery and muscle soreness, raise dopamine levels, help you wake up and be more alert, help you to burn more calories, mobilize brown fat, and more. Visit podcompany.com and use my special promo code SHANE. 50107 for $10 off your order, and each sale helps to support the show as well. Stay cool out there, people. Are you looking for the perfect high-protein snack that isn't loaded with stuff like MSG, nitrates, and sugar? Carnivore Snacks is the perfect high-protein snack made from quality grass-fed beef and salt. That's it. Each bag uses one pound of high-quality beef, lamb, pork, or chicken, salt, and nothing else. Aside from being easy, healthy, and convenient, they also taste great. These snacks are not just another jerky. They are way better. Give a bag a try, and I know you'll keep coming back. Check out Carnivore Snacks, spelled with an X, dot com, and enter coupon code SHANE05137 for 15% off your order, and each sale will help support the Renaissance Wisdom Podcast as well. Welcome to the Renaissance Wisdom Podcast, where ancient and modern wisdom come together to create a better way of living. I'm your host, Shane Sorensen, and each week we speak with successful people from a plethora of disciplines in search of wisdom from their own lives. Your own personal renaissance begins today. Let wisdom be your guide. Hey everybody, welcome to the Renaissance Wisdom Podcast. I'm here with today's guest, David Alexander. Welcome to the show. Hi Shane, thanks for having me. I'm, uh, I've enjoyed, I've actually listened to you a little bit, I think from, uh, well, I just heard the one with uh, Josh Bertolotti when you were on his show. And okay. I think I had heard you with, um, was it with uh, the Strong Stoic Podcast a while back? Yeah, I've actually, uh, I've been yeah. on Brandon's uh, show three times. Um, I. Yeah. Recently recorded him. I was actually his first guest, so uh, oh yeah, <laughs> um, he's also going to be my first uh, my first guest as well. So nice, um, yeah, yeah. I've got to know him through the the walled garden as well. Uh, okay, with him and Josh. Yeah. So um, starting off, uh, why, don't, why don't you tell the listeners just a little bit about yourself and your background? Yeah. So my name's David Alexander. I'm a psychotherapist here in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and uh, the more my public stuff is the. Uh, the podcast Between Two Ravens, Norse Mythology podcast, which our kind of tagline is the, the psychological significance of Norse mythology. So it's me and my friend, Sean, he's kind of more the history buff, and I bring the psychology ideas. And and I do a little bit of writing with the Walled Garden as well. And I'll actually I'm be starting a new mindfulness group with the Walled Garden, too. Okay. Well, and that, that actually lead into my next question, which is, you know, what, what are you currently working on? Or like, what projects do you have going? Why don't you tell us about the Walled Garden a little bit? Yeah, with the walled garden that I, I've, I've, the first thing I, so, the, you know, the way I got involved with them, I met Simon Drew. He's the host of the, uh, it was the uh, Practical Stoic podcast, which then he turned into the walled garden. And I've been listening to that a lot throughout the COVID pandemic um, and emailing back and forth with him a little bit. And as I started kind of writing some little th things that I thought maybe would be blog posts, but I hadn't really figured out, you know, what's my audience and where am I going to publish them? 
um, writing a little bit about Jungian psychology and about stoicism are kind of two of my big interests that I shared that with him. And he's like, you know, you should, we're, we're expanding this walled garden thing. You should join in. He, he loved the ideas I was talking about. And uh, that's how I got involved with them. So I write on, been reading a lot about this idea of archetypes from Jungian psychology and how that ties in with the, the ideas in Norse mythology as well. And okay. a little bit about this, how, how stoicism has influenced my thinking in my life, really. And, uh, but lately my own personal stuff I write is the word prosoke is sort of the, the ancient Greek stoic word for mindfulness or for focused attention and how modern ideas on mindfulness can connect with stoicism. That's where I'm kind of moving my focus lately. Okay. Yeah. It's, um, it's interesting you say that too. Like I've, I often compare stoicism to like Western Buddhism, uh, yeah. and people who have a little bit of understanding of both, you know, mindsets kind of can usually see like the connection there where, um, yeah. you know, a lot of it has to do with just learning about detachment, um, not necessarily yeah. learn like living completely separate from the world, but, you know, learning how to kind of detach from things like, you know, some of those impulses and emotions yeah. that may steer a lot of people's lives, but learning to kind of see yourself as a person that's in control of the ship, as opposed to someone's just caught up in the, in the, in the current, so to speak. Yeah. And I think there's some interesting history there. The best, and I'm not always great with history, but the best of my understanding that when uh, Alexander the Great kind of invaded pushing east, that's where they kind of gained some of these Buddhist ideas into actually then the ancient Greek uh, traditions. And that, so the idea that it's sort of our Western tradition connection to some of these Buddhist ideas, maybe that's a little easier for some people to approach if the Buddhist ideas feel a little too you know, different from their usual way of thinking. Sure. I, I think that is uh, a little bit of the case sometimes in the Western mind too, right? Like we're, yeah. uh, our, our whole paradigm and kind of way that we view the world is very different than an Eastern way of looking yeah. at things. So I think it, you know, the, the, the Buddhism may be very foreign to someone, you know, born in the West, at least in the beginning versus, yeah. you know, the stoicism tends to, you know, it still references things that we, we see as part of our culture here in the West. So there's a real benefit to the Buddhist ideas of like non-attachment, but it's very far from where most people are. So there's something good about that extreme distance, but also sure. stoicism has that idea of not being too attached to things, but still this real focus and drive idea that is very kind of contemporary. Uh, yeah. Definitely. So um, <clears throat> a couple of the things I really wanted to talk to you about, I mean, um, were, were some of like the North myth, the Norse mythology. So, um, a question that I run into a lot with people when I tell them about, you know, my, my work or like, you know, the, the podcast or the book, um, a lot of times people kind of have this default idea that like, for example, you know, stoicism or, uh, Plato or just any kind of like ancient f philosophical wisdom is maybe outdated, right? Like, well, yeah. it may be great in a, in a time when there was no technology and, you know, so on and so forth, but you know, how, how does that apply to your life today or how can we benefit from it today? So yeah. I'd like to pose that same kind of question for you, you know, with Norse mythology, you know, what, yeah. what makes it significant or relevant for today and how can we oh, yeah. extract wisdom there? The, a, a couple different places there, actually a lot of different ways I could take that question, but the one I, so what, what brought me to st studying it was one, my, my friend, John, who's the co-host, he was just talking a little bit about it. And it was right at the same time as I was learning about Jungian psychology and this idea of understanding the archetypes and that idea, like to understand yourself better, to understand your unconscious mind. That's the whole idea. Why would you care about your dreams? Why would you care about myths and fairy tales that people were kind of projecting their unconscious minds into these stories? Um, so whether it's modern stories or, you know, ancient stories. There's something there that's true about just, you know, the human, human spirit or the, you know, unconscious mind mm -hmm. that, so that to, you know, to understand these archetypes to show up in dreams, to try to make sense of what are the figures in your dreams, maybe understand the myths. And they're very strange kind of stories, sort of like a dreams in ways. Um, another way that idea of why is it relevant today, especially the, the Viking history. So one is, you know, if you're interested in philosophy and you know about Nietzsche, that idea that God is dead. Right. And this transition, we're kind of transitioning from a Christian culture to something new and whether it's atheistic or um, some other type of spirituality. And a lot of people aren't sure, you know, where they fall in that or what's which one is more beneficial that the Vikings, especially where these myths were written down, was that transition from when there was this old pagan culture 
to Christianity. The Romans came in and kind of said, everyone needs to be part of the Roman Empire. You need to be Christian. And how they dealt with that transition. And then also that they have this ancient mindset, that, you know, sort of Carl Jung talks about this sort of idea of just the, what is the mindset that humans evolved with? What's, what's underneath all of our cultural baggage? Um, that some of that ancient pagan traditions maybe are uh, a thing that intuitively fits for people if Christianity is not the thing for them. Yeah, it makes me think, uh, I believe it was Rousseau, and I think Nietzsche actually touched on this a little bit too, like the idea of the noble savage, the yeah. the idea that's like kind of tapping into something that's a little bit like primordial in us, something that's a little yeah. bit deeper, that's maybe a, a part of ourselves that we suppress in order to, mm -hmm. you know, operate in society, right? Um, right. That, that, that maybe there is like some truth there that's kind of worth exploring or, and I guess that's where Jung would talk about the shadow self, right? Yeah. Well, and he would even t use the term of archaic man. And that's that idea that there's something that we evolved to do. And we had this, you know, connection to nature, the universe, things like this, that, you know, no one taught us, right? The, the old cultures, they just kind of figured it out on their own. Somehow they figured out some kind of system, but that, that idea that there's something we've lost touch with. So why do you look to the past, right, to connect back to something like that? And yeah. whether it's, yeah, the, the shadow, the parts that aren't acceptable in modern society, or um, they'll say that within the shadow, there can be really valuable things that you've repressed and pushed back. So, Yeah, I've, um, you know, I've, I've done a little bit of, uh, like, work with the therapist and stuff. I, I guess I'm kind of on the fence. I, I definitely believe in psychology, of course. Um, you know, I sometimes I feel torn between the idea that maybe like, for example, a, a diagnosis uh, can be kind of paralytic for someone mm -hmm. that it, it becomes wrapped up in your identity. And, you know, I sometimes I question like, you know, d do I need, for example, like a therapist to tell me that there's something about me, right. That needs to change versus yeah. like doing work internally. But, um, yeah. I know that, you know, from, from work that I've done with others and work just that I've done on myself, I mean, I've definitely over my years, I mean, I've touched into, you know, nothing like drastically traumatic, but like traumatic events from my life that, you know, I've realized that I've been holding yeah. on to like scars or baggage and, um, yeah. it's weird, but sometimes it's taken like really, uh, I guess very abrasive events to help me tap into that, right? Like it's oh, yeah. things that I wouldn't have touched into unless like, I was in a lot of pain. Um, right. And I guess as that, that's kind of like part of that process, right? Is. Yeah. That I'm a very conventional, you know, cognitive behavior therapist or, and also practice dialectical behavior therapy. It's, it's not mm -hmm. Jungian psychology. I'm not trained in Jungian psychology. That's just my real interest. And that gotcha. I, especially through the COVID pandemic that I found answers there that I didn't, wasn't finding in my training basically. And it's somewhat around these questions of, yeah, how do we accept the hardest things in life? It's one thing, if you're a little familiar with cognitive behavior therapy, that part, you know, kind of, you're feeling very emotional. Some emotions make sense. Some emotions are kind of overblown and that you can maybe think differently to, to clarify how you're, you know, further, this is a Albert Ellis, one of the founders of CBT, how you're further upsetting yourself, uh, causing your suffering to be worse, that you could think more rationally. That's kind of the basis of CBT. The Jungian psychology gets in these parts of really finding what is your true self. So it's not them telling you what's wrong with you. It's maybe they help you to point out your blind spots a little bit, but really helping you to see within yourself. Why do you do the things you do that, you know, I wasn't, you know, the, the saying like, well, that wasn't me, right? I did something and that wasn't me. That question, well, then how did that happen? That's clearly some kind of an unconscious mind that you weren't conscious of it, but you did it anyways. And now you have to make sense of yourself and integrate yourself, all of that. Yeah. And it's, it's complicated too, right? Because there's so many different like inputs and impulses. I mean, you have like social programming, like things that people have, you know, taught you or told you or society has taught you. You have, I guess, past experiences, you have biological impulses, like so something I've been reading up a little bit more on lately is, uh, you know, the dopamine cycles and, yeah. um, something that I've picked up recently is, a lot of my day is determined by the first 15 minutes after I wake up. And yeah. the, the big thing is like, if I turn off my alarm, put my phone down and get going, 
I'm much more productive. My energy levels are better. If I spend 15 minutes just like swiping through videos on TikTok, it, it changes yeah. me for the rest of the day. Um, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, obviously like part of that is just being mindful. I mean, do you have any tips for people out there? Like, you know, how do you gain a higher level of, of self-awareness kind of over those things so that you can, as you mentioned, or as you, you know, yeah. kind of said, like, how do you tap into who you really are versus, you know, some of those just like impulses that you may not be conscious of? Right. The idea of mindfulness is that it's really a practice. So rather an early idea I had was that, you know, you take a mindfulness class and now I'm a more mindful person and that's great, but really it's not something yeah. you learn once. You have to be practicing it every day or, you know, as often as possible, at least a few times a week, maybe even three times a day actually would be good. It doesn't have to be a, a long thing. It can be just a couple minutes of stopping and doing something that's mindfulness. So whether that's focusing on your breath, focusing on your senses, things you see, you know, going for a walk. It's that difference between going for a walk and your mind's wandering and you're worrying or you're talking to somebody on the phone or to go for a walk and really pay attention to what you're actually doing. Um, and then as, as you practice meditation or things like that and get better at it, to really sit there and focus on your breath, the thoughts wander in and you kind of allow them to come in, you allow them to leave, but then you kind of pay attention to them and to see what is that thought, the thing that comes to your mind and rather than it being a, an upsetting feeling that you have to run away from, kind of sit with, you know, what does that mean for me? Is that a thing I actually want? Is that a, yeah, like you said, just kind of instincts and drives? Or is that really me? That's kind of a, a starting place, I think. Sure. And do you, like, do you personally recommend or do you find, you know, more benefit in, like, for example, uh, you know, meditation where you're just kind of trying to clear your mind and just kind of relax and like be, be present in the moment? Or do you like more like self-reflective things? Like for example, journaling or, you know, yeah. starting your day and like writing out a list of kind of things that you want to work on and be aware of, of the day or, or do you combine both? Yeah. It depends where you're at that to start to do something that's mindfulness and that idea, like, you know, for some people, the meditation is too much. There, there's just too much anxiety going on, too many things they don't want to, getting overwhelmed by. You know, close your eyes and you sit quietly and it all comes flooding through. So maybe it's better to start with that, like mindfully walking, even like mindfully washing the dishes, whatever whatever it is you're doing, learning that process of how to focus your mind on one thing at a time. Um, as you get to that place where you can sit with the thoughts a little easier and the emotions, then meditation can be helpful. And that journaling can really help sort of to to amplify the feelings, you really write down what it is you're feeling. So you're actually not avoiding your feelings. You're, you're sitting with it, but you're also taking it out of your head and you have to slow it down to put it onto paper. And you see that now it's, it's outside of you. It's not just a thing taking over your mind. It's a thought you put. So I found journaling helpful. Yeah. When it's ideas, I don't quite want to uh, vent with somebody or talk it through with another person, just, you know, write it out to yourself and then see what you think about it when you look back at it sometimes. Yeah. Okay. And what about like, you know, and obviously, I mean, I, I have ways of dealing with this from, you know, things that I've learned in stoicism, but like, what, what do you recommend for someone like, cause I think a frequent thing is people feel sometimes like they're kind of enslaved by their emotions, right? Like, yeah. um, and you know, something that I, I try to pass on to people is not to suppress emotions, right? Not, not to feel guilty for feeling depressed, not to feel yeah. guilty for, or bad for having these feelings, but rather just to kind of be aware of them and make yourself like, I always call it just, you know, making yourself the outside observer, like rather yeah. than just feeling the emotion and feeling overwhelmed by it, be the person that's identifying that there is a person that is you that is experiencing this emotion. Um, you know, do you have like a similar kind of recommendation or like, how do you, like, what would you recommend to someone that has a difficulties, I guess, kind of navigating those emotions that, I think an idea within that, very, very close to what you described, is within mindfulness, the idea of non-judgment. So if you define mindfulness as being non-judgmental, being present in the moment and non-judgmental, it's mm -hmm. that idea that you try to let go of judgments. So even the judgments around your emotions, right, that, I'm, that I get angry, the judgment is, and that's a bad thing, right, versus just I'm feeling angry, right? It's, it is maybe detrimental when you act out that anger with somebody. They might not like it, right? But just to feel it, is it a bad thing? Right? Maybe it feels uncomfortable, but it's not bad. And it goes back, you're not bad for having it, right? It's just um, normalizes that. So I, I think that is a, a very important step to not, um, yeah, reject or judge having an emotional experience. Yeah. And then I guess the next step to that, right, is kind of asking, asking yourself why, 
you're experiencing or, yeah. or if there's a, if there's a message or if there's a reason that there's something there that yeah. you need to investigate further or that's that's uh, cognitive behavior therapy is very much figuring out what is the automatic thought what is it it's something you must be telling yourself to get that upset that's why in any given situation some people will really react other people react differently the, the two people must be telling themselves something differently and that's the whole uh, that approach to therapy very much okay so we'll, I guess we'll kind of hop back. I guess we, we went down a little bit of a rabbit hole there, but um, okay. hopping back into, uh, you know, some of the Norse mythology. So, yeah. um, you know, I recently, not too long ago, there was a movie called The Northman, which I know we, we emailed about a little bit. Yeah. I know you mentioned you hadn't seen it yet, so I won't, I won't talk about it too much. But, um, you know, one of the things that was pretty striking about it was that I think it was pretty accurate. Um, as far as some of like the brutality that you saw in like Viking culture, but yeah. you also started to see things like brotherhood and, um, you know, honor and just diff different things that kind of went into that culture along with some of the bloodshed and some of the more like brutal things. So, you know, I think that the bad side of Viking culture and Viking history is probably one of the most heavily documented. Like when a lot of people think about, you know, Vikings, they just imagine these like six foot eight like muscled up, like shredded guys with axes, just going through villages and raping and burning everything. Um, what are, what are some of the redeeming parts of, you know, Viking culture or history that we can look to? Yeah. It's especially within the mythology. There's this one idea that really sort of motivates that kind of, you know, warfare culture was the idea that to die and go to Valhalla to be, you know, Odin is right. the kind of king of the gods to go to his kind of chosen hall you need to die in glorious combat, right? That everybody else is going to the underworld and there's a, a woman named Hell down there and you have to live with her. But if you want to go live and drink with Odin, you need to die in combat. And that really is a nice story to convince people they want to go die in warfare for you, right? That's kind of a very sort of a patriarchal or, um, you know, supports the, the, the kings or the jarls, the lords of the uh, time. But some of the other ideas, different from that within the myths, there's one epic poem called the Havamal. And it's sort of the, the Viking virtues poem. And it talks about all these lessons that Odin is teaching a young poet. The idea is that by writing poetry is how you kind of learn. I mean, back then to be able to write was quite a talent. The people thought it was kind of almost like sorcery or magic to uh, be able to write something. So that if you had the magic of poetry, that you knew these wisdom, basically the idea of finding wisdom in poetry. Mm -hmm. But they talk about a lot of the values there some of them aren't so off from stoicism. Do you think a lot of your listeners are coming, coming from a place of uh, I, being exposed to stoicism? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. That the, uh, the idea of moderation is talked about a lot there. The idea that if, you know, a, a guest comes to your home, you share some of what you have with them. And if you're a guest in someone's home, you eat some of what they share with you, but you don't eat them out of the house and home, then they're going to want to have you back. It's kind of that idea that there's just these, you know, moderate, temperate ideas there's really this idea of wisdom that, that Odin goes to the underworld to gain wisdom, that he's, he's really focused on wisdom, but maybe not for a wise reason. He kind of wants it to have power over things. So that's kind of maybe a, a difference that was maybe in the Viking mindset, but that they did value the idea of wisdom, even if um, there's a thing in Viking culture, it was very, as you're describing, a very masculine, you know, kind of manly, this type, certain type of masculinity idea, but that they, they were willing to go to to sorceresses and do unmanly things if it was to gain wisdom, that they weren't too proud kind of to, to do that. There's a one myth where a Loki and Odin and a Loki and Thor have to dress up in, in dresses and wedding dresses to sneak into a place. And they, they don't really, Thor certainly doesn't want to do it, but that's what he needs to do to get his hammer back so that he's you know not too proud to do that. Um, the place where I really see that, so we're talking about the virtues, right? Um, Wisdom, temperance, obviously courage, right? That courage to go into battle, right, is very strong. A certain idea of that in the Vikings. The virtue of justice is where I see they really differ. If you look in that poem, that is, you talked about brotherhood earlier, right? That they care about their tribe. They care about their family and the person that they, you know, they're under, their, their lord or their king. But they don't care much about the rest of humanity, I don't think, from everything I read about them. That if you're a different tribe and we're going to be able to raid and take something from you, that's kind of free game. So where the, the stoic justice is about the cosmopolis and all humanity, the, the Viking virtues are very much about your caring about your family, which we can kind of admire caring about your tribe. But then that's like modern ideas of tribalism versus uh, more 
healthy, large community, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a ton of, ton of sense. And it makes me think of, uh, you know, makes me think of like Hobbes and Rousseau with like the social contract and, you know, the, the idea that as you get into these larger societies, there's a different level of security, uh, that, that you're able to benefit from in a society. And it, it kind of asks different things of its citizens, you know, even, even Rome or Greece, right. Even though they were, you know, city States, uh, you know, especially in Greece, even though there were city estates and there was, you know, differences in each state, you know, Sparta was very different from Athens and their cultures, um, you know, they were larger societies as opposed to these kind of like smaller bands of tribes. So, and, and I guess they kind of saw one another as Greeks, even if they were, uh, from a different Greek city state, uh, I guess they still saw that kind of camaraderie or that, that brotherhood versus the Vikings. It looks, sounds like they had a much, you know, a much smaller kind of pinpoint view on who a brother was. Yeah. Um, And it's a really, there's even things within that uh, that Havamal poem where it talks about, you know, some of their, they have all these little nice sayings of things to remember, you know, sort of like, it's almost like the Ten Commandments, but there's over a hundred stanzas of the poem. It's things like, uh, you know, how do you, how do you keep yourself safe while you arm your friends? There's another one that you need to really know who are your true friends. Don't go arming a false friend. That's, that's not sure. going to work out well. And so that, that idea that these were things that were just very practical to them, but you can also take them quite metaphorically, right, to to raise up your neighbors so that they're capable of supporting themselves and then they can help you when you fall on tough times that that's a modern way to take it rather than just uh, giving people axes and swords yeah yeah and you you saw that a lot um you know actually like in the in the greek society especially you, you saw this celebration of the individual and you know they they celebrated the athlete they put these like bodies up on display it was yeah a reminder to the citizens kind of what, what was possible, what the human was capable of. And when, you know, people push themselves to be better, to achieve the arete, the excellence, you know, they, they went out and they were better soldiers and better tradesmen. And, you know, by being strong as an individual, all of these, you know, little, little strong individuals make up a stronger society. Um, And, you know, makes sense that in Viking culture where, you know, they didn't necessarily have the security of like city walls, for example. Uh, yeah. They're kind of on the move. They're you know more tribal. There's more. Uh, they're they're more vulnerable to the elements. They're more vulnerable to you know attacks from from yeah. different uh, entities around them. You know, it, it would make sense that they would start to kind of like hold up certain vir- virtues over others that maybe we would, you know, like. In a more secure society, maybe there's yeah. more emphasis on wisdom as opposed to like strength and brutality. But when your whole survival rests on your ability to exert harm on, you know, a, an attacking force, yeah. you know, it, it would make sense how that would be elevated more. And I do when you, you know, live in a rugged landscape where you can't exactly, you know, have farms and farms and everybody's kind of collecting all the grain back to the big city, but it's, the things are a little harder. So the idea of, you know, trying not to judge them by our modern standards. It's also interesting because, you know, a lot of the Stoic philosophy was being written a thousand years before these Viking poems were written down. But a lot of those things hadn't hadn't reached them. You know, they hadn't received that kind of cultural message that this is what, you know, culture is, right? They had their own culture. And that that was only a thousand years ago from today, right? So that it's this sort of window into something that's maybe a much more ancient idea, those ideas that go back 4,000 years. But again, that maybe we can relate to kind of uh, somewhat today, yeah. What, what do you think, like, I mean, do you have, like, one, I guess, like, if there was, like, one lesson or, um, you know, one major, like, takeaway from mythology and just, like, Viking culture that you would pull out that you would say is just really valuable, like, a lesson that we could learn from yeah. today? Or The one thing that we didn't kind of think about looking into it, but especially my co-host, Sean, always kept pointing out, was this idea of fate. And even especially as we looked at Loki, this idea, mm. at first, John was calling him an agent of chaos because Loki comes in and somebody had a plan and it makes things more chaotic. But when you look at the myths deep enough, it's actually that Loki gets things back to the way fate intended. That when Odin, you know, he's the king of the gods, he thinks he can do whatever he wants. And he's either, you know, trying to bring his son back from the dead or things like that. But Loki tricks you. So the thing you think you're trying to accomplish, you know, basically that you can't will what's against the fate of the cosmos. And that's an idea in Stoicism, and you learn it all these really interesting ways within uh, Norse mythology. Yeah, yeah free, free will is really 
tricky yeah. like that when you think about it like because yeah. you you imagine like if, if there is some sort of creative force right whether you ascribe it to god or odin or yeah. the universe or just you know the laws of yeah. physics whatever you kind of ascribe it to right. it's like if if everything is set do you really have a choice and if there's something with yeah. foreknowledge of everything does foreknowledge exclude uh, you know, the ability to kind of like go off of course, I think it was, yeah. it was maybe like Einstein that, uh, you know, went a little bit crazy with the idea that like, if everything was just kind of this big cycle and is repeating that we were kind of everything about like free choice was just an illusion. It was all just part of fate, even if we yeah. thought we were in control. Right. That uh, I was actually just reading, uh, Carl Jung this morning, his book, uh, Eon or Ion, uh, Aeon, I think that he was saying how free will is a psychological fact. It's, it's a psychological experience. You experience free will, whether the, the metaphysics of it, it's a fact that's probably up for debate. He's, he's not going to give you that answer, but you know, does free will exist that we experience it? So rather than it being an illusion, the idea that it is a fact in your, you know, your experience of things, that's what it is. But can we ever actually even say on a larger scale that it's sort of just a, uh, I think as a Kai Whiting at the Walled Garden says, it's sort of a, uh, it's actually an expression of faith, whether you have faith in science and the universe yeah. and our, you know, our intellectual capabilities as human beings, or you have faith in other things, you can't actually step outside and observe it, right? It's, it's, we're swimming within it kind of, so. Yeah. And that's, I guess that's one of the things too, like, you know, obviously I know you talked to earlier about Nietzsche, you know, when he, when he references like God is dead and, you know, he's, yeah. he's speaking about us moving outside of like a Christian paradigm. But, yeah. you know, when you look at a lot of these cultures, whether it's, you know, more like pagan Norse mythology, or even if you're looking at like, you know, Greece or, uh, Rome or times during the Renaissance, like, even if it wasn't like even if the collective consciousness or the kind of the zeitgeist of the day wasn't directly, you know, based around a religion per se, there definitely was an emphasis on like fate, right? And just the idea that there is something that exists that, you know, maybe we can try to influence, maybe we can fight against it, but like belief that if something happens to you, it was meant to be as opposed to feeling victimized by it, which is something that I see yeah. a lot more in our modern age is like, you know, somebody has a traumatic event, somebody has something bad happen to them and they become very paralyzed by it. And they just sort of, you know, like, woe is me, you know, like what, why did this have to happen to me? Like, this is awful. Like everything's meaningless versus something bad happening to you. And you just saying, well, like this is, it just is what it is, right? It's, it's fate. Yeah. It was beyond my control and I'm just, I have to move on. I just have to continue right. to kind of go along that channel that fate has lined out for me. And, and that is a lot of what brought me into really kind of seriously studying philosophy was those, those questions of nihilism, right? People kind of tell you life is meaningless and, and how do I try to convince you or prove to you somehow otherwise, right? But yet that seems like occasionally that's my task as a therapist, even though that's not what I signed up for. Right. And yeah, that, you know, you can say that idea, right. To love your fate. And it's nice to just keep telling yourself that, but if you're not feeling it, it doesn't feel very true. But then how many different ways can you think about it and explore it until some piece of it does kind of feel true, right? And that's whether it is reading Stoics and Epictetus, whether it's looking at Norse mythology, maybe something there strikes you and you're like, yeah, if I do what Odin did there and I keep striving, it's like Buddhism and non-striving, right? I keep striving to make this thing happen. I'm actually just causing my own destruction. That's uh when I, when I saw that in that one myth, I'm like, that, that strikes me. I don't know if it strikes most people. But, yeah. it, it sounds like too, there's, you know, I, I'm sure that I haven't read a ton of Norse mythology. I, I've read a bit. I supposedly, um, you know, I'm, I'm half Danish. So like my, yeah. my grandparents both came from Denmark and, um, you know, I have family like in, in Norway and Denmark and all yeah. throughout, uh, Scandinavia, but they, you know, the, the rumor is right somewhere back in our tree, there's like some, some Viking somewhere. And, yeah. um, I've done a little bit of study, but I, I imagine that, you know, Norse mythology is probably very similar to Greek mythology in the sense that like, even the gods kind of like make mistakes, make half yeah. sins. They, they sort of pay for it. It's like, there's not this like perfect divine being, right. That, yeah. um, sort of judges everyone, but it, 
it's like you, you get to see stories of like someone that fails. You know, the heroes oftentimes fail in the stories. They're not just these these perfect characters. Yeah. What's interesting is the, the one uh, Norse god who is the, the perfect and all good, the beautiful Balder, who is one of Odin's sons, that Loki sets up the scenario where the blind, they're, uh, they're all throwing weapons at him to see that he's unharmable and they can't damage him. So it's like, hey, everybody, have a, have a good time, throw weapons at him, and they just bounce off him, right? But somehow the one thing he's weak to is mistletoe, and somehow Loki knows that. And Loki gets the blind god and gives him a spear made out of mistletoe, or maybe it's an arrow or a blow dart gun. And he's like, sets up the blind god to aim it at him, and everyone's like, ah, oh, this is funny, he's going to miss. But Loki aims it just right, and that he kills him. And so that Loki won't allow that to be, this idea that perfect, all good, that that's too much. And fate will crush that, and the human beings are much more complicated. They're not perfect and all good yeah what, what's your favorite do you, do you have do you have like a favorite uh like like a favorite piece of north mythology a favorite story from it oh it's pretty hard to say after looking at all the different ones yeah i like the sacrifice of odin a lot because it, it's probably not so different from the christian story of christ sacrificing himself for others but Odin's doing it purely selfishly and for wisdom, that he just wants all of this knowledge of the future and how to control everything and magic powers. But he he hangs himself from a tree and um, sort of these like hallucinating, I'm trying to remember the details of how, he, how it is that he's kind of hallucinating there as he's hanging from a tree. And he gets to go to the underworld and he talks to the seeress. And that, for me, it really connects to some of the, the Jungian ideas of like understanding your feminine side. That you know, as a as a person, you're you're a man, if you're a man, but you also have a feminine side, and that that's a source of wisdom. Um, but the the Norse mythology shows really kind of the the dark aspects of it. That it's not necessarily just going to be nice and shiny and beautiful, but it's something you need to approach. It's maybe the thing you're most afraid to approach, but you do it anyways. Yeah. Okay, so that that's I think probably a good a good bridge into, um, you know, I wanted to ask you specifically about yeah. like, uh, young and the shadow self. Like, how do you feel that, I guess the, the shadow self or this idea presents in like Norse culture in the Norse yeah. mythology? It, it's the thing is, um, it's a little bit true of the Greek mythology, right? As you're saying, you know, Zeus is not necessarily a person you look up to, but the idea is that he's, he's too extreme. He's too powerful, right? So he can kind of, get away with anything, that that wouldn't necessarily be admirable for a human being. But really, all of the Norse figures are very shadowy. But the Thor is maybe one of the ones who's a little more kind of, uh, you know, just upright and courageous. But even he has moments of weakness and people taunting him for being weak, and he goes into a rage and kind of all the all the things Stoicism warns about, about anger. That's very much who Thor is. Um, that... So the the system of kind of archetypes that I share a lot on the podcast, it's from uh, Robert Moore, who's a Jungian author. And it's called The King Warrior, The Magician, and The Lover. And it's the mm -hmm. idea these are four parts of every, especially every man, but they would say for women, it's about the same too, actually, that there's, you know, the, the warrior version of the woman. Within Norse mythology, there's a, a hunter goddess who's kind of the warrior there. But that for the masculine archetypes, you know, the Thor is the warrior, and sometimes he's a good warrior, but sometimes he's kind of the shadow warrior, right? That, um, and understanding the lover is a little more complicated of what that lover archetype is. As, as we spent time exploring it, it's the idea maybe it's kind of like the mystic who's in touch with like poetry and art and your senses, like being in touch with your body, where a lot of religions are more about the spirit and the mind and not so much caring about the body. Um, but then the, the uh, trying to think which part I want to say and to try to trying to keep it brief that sure. basically the myths confront you with, you know, this is what the shadow version looks like. They're not showing you the good version. They're showing you what not to do. Um, in a lot of the different myths, whether it's Odin and he's trying to be a King, but he's, you know, trying to have power over others rather than something that's more respecting people's autonomy, maybe. Um, and, and even with Loki being the trickster is sort of the magician type, but what's the shadow magician is the trickster. And that part that there's actually something good within that, that it's not just that the trickster is trying to ruin everything. It's trying to get you to humble yourself, pay attention to yourself, you know, recognize where you're, where you're actually deceiving yourself. That's what I, one of the things I really take 
from that mythology, I never thought I would until I saw like this, you know, this is what's good about these odd dark figures there. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's interesting because we can learn from like a positive role model, but yeah. we can also learn from kind of like the negative role model, yeah. right? Like when you're reading a myth, you know, you can read and be inspired by Hercules, you know, having the courage to go out and, and knowing that even though he's going to die, he's going to go out and he's going to do this. Or like, um, you know, you get uh, inspired by Achilles. Um, yeah. th there's there's things that you can pull from the good, but you almost always see how like, you know, for example, with like Achilles, right? Like his, his courage and his strength, which is his, one of his greatest assets, is also kind of the thing that gets him killed, right? So yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it's something that this keeps coming up to me a lot as, as I just continue to learn and grow too, is that, you know, I, I keep going back to that, like the, the golden mean or the, the middle way. I, I, yeah. I just feel like when, whenever you look at any component of, you know, the human psyche or kind of character, it seems like there's a balance between these two extremes. And part of your job as a human being is to try to be aware of that component of your personality and, and try to kind of like teeter totter in the middle, you know, and at times, yeah. you know, for example, like the, the one that I always go back to is what Aristotle used with courage. You know, you have courage is actually the ideal. And then, yeah. you know, it's in between the two extremes of cowardice and brashness, right? So yeah. when someone's brash, they run out into battle with no plan, they get stabbed right away and, you know, they die. Yeah. And then when someone mm -hmm. is a coward, they just, they hide in a ditch somewhere and they never go fight in the battle and nobody knows about them. You know, where right. the courageous person is someone that knows when to run into battle, knows when to retreat and gather their forces. It's like the wisdom is in the, the median, right? And yeah. I, I suppose that's something that you probably see a lot in the, in the Norse mythology as well. It, and it's that idea that, yeah, whether we're talking about the, the virtues or these uh, gods or these archetypes that they're, in some ways they're kind of all the same thing, right? That the, the warrior, you know, if you're just the warrior, it's destructive, but what is to be the warrior and the lover, right? To be the warrior with love. It's actually just a very complicated question, right? If you try to really play that out in your everyday <clears> life, <throat> it's one thing term I've come with is kind of like tough love, right? But not, Tough love is a euphemism for, you know, I can hurt you, but it, but it's with love, so you can't complain about it, right? But actually, to, to get, give somebody the hard answer, but it's really what's good for them, right? That you're actually caring for them by sometimes, you know, setting a limit or telling them what they don't want to hear, um, that that would be, right, the warrior with love, actually, yeah. Yeah, and it, it makes me think, too, um, I don't know if you're a, a Jordan Peterson fan or not, but I know he... I like his... Um, that he did a series on the Bible and the way he's he made, what's the psychological way of thinking of the Bible. So whether or not you believe it spiritually, right. how do you think about it? And how does it, a representation of how humans think? And I found that very yeah, useful from him. Yeah. Well, one of his quotes that always stands out to me, or I think about a lot as the, you know, the idea that like every, he says like behind every good man, there needs to be like a monster. Right. And yeah. I guess that's, that's the shadow self, right. Is, I think that when someone is, when someone is insecure, when someone is not kind yeah. of sure of their own capacity to do harm, they tend to be a little bit more aggressive, a little bit more defensive versus the person that's like, they know that they can inflict. And I'm talking like specifically, yeah. you know, about like battle, for example, right? Like yeah. the warrior who really, really knows that he can just go in and win a battle is probably going to be a little bit more reluctant because he also understands war. He knows what comes with it. He knows yeah. the the danger. And I guess uh, now that I'm thinking about it, maybe that doesn't apply as much in uh, in Viking culture when you're trying to make it to Valhalla, right? You're kind of like, do you, is there a measured response or is it just kind of celebrated to just pick up your sword yeah. and just run in there and just get into the, battle? The way to, to think of it, again, that Robert Moore, he says, you know, the also that the warrior is only the warrior. It's only the good warrior if it follows the king, which would be to be fighting for a good cause, right? If you know you're fighting for a good cause, then, you know, it's meaningful. It's something that's, you know, the, the, there's a healthier aspect to it. Whereas if you're, if you're fighting and it's not for a good cause, or you don't have that um, meaning and security kind of thing you were describing, that 
yeah, either do you lose control, do you go too far? There's probably a lot of different ways to to think of it. And yeah, so whether the Vikings were fighting for a good cause or not, right? It, the, their their culture, their way of seeing it, made sense of it being a thing that was very meaningful for them. We might differ in opinion now, but yeah. It makes me think of an idea too, like, um, and this is this is really extreme, and I hope it doesn't get taken out of context by anybody listening. But like, I, I frequently think, right, like. Like Nazi Germany was so close to just conquering the world. I mean, they they were really close. If if they would have just been a little bit more intelligent about, you know, keeping their peace with Russia a little bit longer and maybe, um, you know, kind of finishing their takeover of like France and UK and, you know, maybe trying to defeat America first before going after Russia. I mean, they they really could have dominated the world. And it's it's crazy that in an alternate reality where like the Nazis won, we could all be reading a textbook talking about how Hitler was like the greatest leader, the greatest like unifying force, you know, in, in our, in our history, in our culture. Right. And it's, it's, it's really crazy that you could have an alternate reality where Hitler was the greatest man, you know, taught by the textbooks. And then of course we live in our, in our world where, you know, we see that he was this really terrible person that, you know, killed the Jews. That was really brutal. I mean, that did unimaginable acts of like horror and terror. Um, so, so much of that is just really the way that like, from what paradigm you're viewing it from, right? I mean, yeah. if, if one, you were- a, One thing a, I actually, I would see there, and yeah. as you said, right, there could be this alternate history, right? But why did fate go this way? Why didn't it go the other way? That, you know, he, he wasn't doing it with justice in mind, right? And then the yeah. idea that if, if you don't have justice, then do you actually have wisdom? And they probably they had a lot of you know strategies and intelligence and things like that, right? But could they not self-reflect and see their shadow? That the part of all the harm and injustice they were doing. When you're too blind to all of that, you think you have wisdom, but it's a false wisdom. And then it all falls apart, right? So that's hopefully that idea that things are going to go the right way, right? He said, yeah, it's sort of history's written, written by the victors, but yeah. So how do you do you think that that like applies at all to like the Viking culture, right? I mean, if, if or are they not as bar- barbaric as what popular culture may make them seem? It's it's a good question, <laughs> and also sort of why did uh why did you know sort of the the Christianity and the um, Roman Empire kind of then take them over, right? Were they just better organized, or were they onto something correct? Yeah. The, the interesting thing, uh, yes, I don't, I don't know if I quite have an answer, but the thing that makes me think about is how a lot of the valuable things about the Viking culture and even some of the old Germanic cultures, they managed to float under the surface where people on the outside would convert to Christianity. They still kept a lot of these little spiritual ideas alive. It's, you know, if you look at Christmas, Christmas is a very pagan holiday, mm. the old pagan Yule. It's much more that, you know, you got, you know, elves and Christmas trees and all these things, right? It's not really much to do with Christ in the Middle East, right? And that... Yeah, Constantine just kind of sprinkled Jesus in there to... Right, to yeah. To kind of appease And so everybody. let them, you know, the, the people kept their pagan traditions yeah. while still, you know, and, and maybe hopefully some of the good things got to continue through. Maybe some of the barbaric warfare that didn't uh, continue through, right? Yeah. All right, so... Um, I've got a couple of questions here. I always like to ask ask my guests. Um, you know, the the Renaissance Wisdom podcast is about you know seeking practical wisdom, um, you know, from people's lives, from experiences, from philosophy that you know the listeners can kind of apply to their to their own life. So, um, a couple of the things I always like to ask. So, um, do you have any uh, favorite books? Like two two books you'd recommend for everybody to read, or the two books I recommend. Yeah, I think, I think I'd recommend these. Well, just for general philosophy, but I was thinking of some deeper psychology ones, but general philosophy ones, um, absolutely Viktor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning, but also, yeah, interesting as we were just talking about <laughs> Nazi Germany, but then also yeah. what is what is hope and the yeah, the human character. Um, and also Edith Eggers, uh, The Choice. Those both are excellent. And I'm trying to think on a little bit of a different topic. You know, if you're interested in the the connection of philosophy and Albert Ellis's kind of version of cognitive behavior therapy, his book, um, let me see if I have it right here, in title, uh, the the myth of self-esteem. He looks at the idea of self-esteem from a lot of philosophical perspectives, 
and that idea of what is the worth of a human being as different philosophers and schools of philosophy uh, spoke of it. That, that might be an interesting one people don't hear about much. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I haven't heard of it. And um, I know Man, Man's Search for Meaning is is off uh, off to a big head start. I think, I mean, out of like seven episodes, I've, I think I've had like four or five recommendations for it, which, you know, I yeah. – I, I always love to recommend that book for anybody that feels like they're just going through a tough time and they feel yeah. like what they're going through is really awful. Um, yeah. I mean, it's such a humbling experience to read that, to yeah. read that book and just see like what this man went through and to, to really feel like you're there experiencing what the yeah. Jews experienced. I mean, it, it just, it puts everything into perspective that and he was able to suffer it, through something you'll never suffer through. And he still, yeah came out kind of victorious at, at the and, end. And there's an interesting part that, that he had the advantage of being a trained psychiatrist before he went in. <laughs> it's you know, not much of an advantage for such a horrific thing. Yeah. And Edith Egger was you know, a 14 year old girl or something very young like that going into it. So that her life journey, it, it's a different journey. And it's really, if you feel like you never had a break, right? That's kind of one, uh, one, of, one of the things I thought as I was reading her being like, wow, she really, you know, to be a child during that, right? It's something else. Yeah. And that was the choice is what you said, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, great. That's, that's definitely going on my list then. So, yeah. um, the next one is, uh, I always like to ask people about their habits, right? I think that, yeah. um, habits and the things that we do on a daily are really, really important to you know, who, who we become and what kind of like, what kind of traits we develop. Um, yeah, you know, I definitely, it sounds like you are definitely practicing like mindfulness. Do you, do you have any um, yeah. specific habits that you go through every day or you try to go through? That I, I probably don't quite do it every day as well as I should. I, I recently picked up a habit of actually exercising every night. So doing at least, at least push-ups and sit-ups if I can't do more than that. Um, yeah. And, and that journaling probably isn't daily. At times it would be maybe three times a week. At other times it's maybe once a week. Um, okay. That that's a really good habit to create. And it's, it's hard to find a way to, it's best probably to start doing it every day or at least several times a week. And then eventually you do it as you need it. As, then it's that uh, a thing that'll come to mind if you start the habit. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think when we were uh, exchanging emails a little bit, I know, I know you mentioned you have like a pretty, you have a pretty heavy schedule, right? Like it, it's pretty tough yeah. for you to. Yeah. No, that I, I start wake up in the morning and running around, get my son ready for preschool. So that's if, if I had time to sit and meditate for five minutes, I probably would, but usually that's where it goes. Yeah. Yeah. How is, uh, how's, how's dad life? You... It's, I, I really enjoy it. It goes back to that idea. It's very meaningful to, to pass on ideas and it really is a challenge. It makes you confront all kinds of things about yourself and you, you don't want to be fooling yourself and to do something, you know, you know, harmful t towards their, and you're never going to be perfect, but if it's a thing that you could have caught and done differently and done better, it's very motivating to improve that part of yourself. Yeah. Sure. All right. And, um, so the next one is, I, I feel like pretty much everyone that I've spoken to, they have had some kind of experience, right. That was kind of like a wake up point or, you know, yeah. a big setback or failure, um, that ended up kind of changing the trajectory of their lives. So have you had any yeah. like personal, you know, major setback that you sort of learned from that caused like a, a personal change in yourself that led you kind of down your yeah. current life path or. For myself, the biggest one that's certainly far too much to talk about is uh, my dad dying when I was 15. But that I think that very much brought me to trying to understand my emotions, understand my psychology. Um, that was definitely a big moment. And that the more recent one was really, though, the COVID pandemic. That during that, that all, all the things mm. I had learned were not yeah. answering it, were not cutting it. That then I realized, you know, searching for wisdom, looking in philosophy, that's uh, that was really the big one for me. Recently. Yeah. Yeah. COVID was crazy because it was like a mass shakeup. Yeah. It, it was like the whole paradigm. Um, it, it was like watching the entire collective consciousness snap out of normalcy bias at the same time. Yeah. You know, like when, yeah. when you have that, it, it was like a nine 11 type event, right? Like just that yeah. Yeah. all of us that have lived through it, we'll, we'll never forget it. We'll tell our grandkids about it. Right. Um, you know, it's it definitely a very interesting time to just kind of see how people reacted and responded to, I guess that, that collective trauma that everybody went through. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And, um, 
the next one is um what about uh like personal heroes do you have any like personal heroes or um anyone that you particularly like looked up to or currently look up to yeah I usually don't tend to, I think, I don't know why, but I have a tendency not to put people on a, uh, a pedestal, which is probably a good thing to try to not idealize them too much. Yeah. But the, the one person that was for a lot of my life was Albert Ellis, that he was one of the ones I first started reading when I was quite young, probably unusual. I, I found to be 18 years old and reading Albert Ellis, um, that, that he shaped my thinking a lot. And then where my thinking kind of shifted and I actually kind of let go of a lot of his ideas is... Carl Jung. And I generally wouldn't call him a hero, except as I read his semi-autobiography, uh, Memories, Dreams, Reflections, that part where he reveals himself and how being, you know, someone that so many people look up to and such a professional, he doesn't want to show parts of himself, but there were things he was like, you can publish this after I'm dead <laughs> because I don't want to sit with it. And kind of this part of just the thing true of both of them is facing shame and how you overcome that, that that's something I really can, that, uh, the courage and vulnerability that we've talked about in the walled garden sometimes. That's, I think, why I would actually call them heroes. Yeah. Okay. And uh, last one I always like to ask here. So um, if you could go back in the past and go yeah. to a, you know, teenage, kind of mid-teenage version of yourself, yeah. um, whatever, you know, whatever age or time frame you think you need the message, yeah. uh, what, what message would you give to yourself? Yeah. When I saw that question, I laughed because um, one of my thoughts is, if you think about going back to your younger self, they probably wouldn't have listened to you. That's the reason you need yeah. advice in the first place. Yeah. But to tell them, to read a book on codependence. That is the, the message that at least if it got a little bit of spark in there, even if they didn't read the book, maybe get them thinking on some things you need to pay attention to. Yeah. Yeah. My, my thought with that question is like, obviously we're, we're teenagers, right? So we, we didn't listen yeah. to anyone. But I like to think like if if a portal opened up and I was in my bedroom like yeah. sulking, being like my my fourteen year old angsty self, and an older version of myself stepped in and yeah. said, you know, like listen here, you little shit, like this is what you yeah. need to do. I'd like to yeah. think that I would have listened at least to myself, you know. But yeah. I don't know, maybe not. Yeah, as I think of myself, that's <laughs> quite quite determined. But know that uh that it would get the wheels turning, whether or not they would take the advice and just be like, yes, whatever you say, it would get the wheels turning. And I think sure. that's how I like to take it. Yeah. All right. Well, um, yeah, I think that pretty much wraps us up. I know you got, uh, you got to hop off time here in a couple minutes. So, um, yeah. you know, is, is there anything else you wanted to share out with the audience? I mean, um, if you want to send me over email, uh, you know, whatever links I can post those in the description too, but, um, yeah, anything the links that, um, that the, the stuff I'm working on right now is especially with the walled garden. And it's this uh, little project I'm going to be starting, I think in March or end, end of March going into April that talking about how mindfulness is really helpful towards understanding philosophy, that idea of, you know, how do you do some of the, you know, the dichotomy of control and even just, uh, they're talking about a quote from Victor Frankl, the moment between stimulus and response, that place where you have mm. a choice, the idea yeah. that through practicing mindfulness, you get a little more and more awareness of where you do have room for choice. So that's why it's such a meaningful thing to me to try to bring that to the walled garden. It'll be free events. You can check out on uh, Friday mornings is our plan there. Awesome. All right. Well, um, David really enjoyed talking, talking with you today, picking your brain a little bit. Uh, I'm, I think I need to go, uh, go check out some, some Norse mythology. It's part of, part of my bloodline after all. Right. So I need to oh, yeah. listen to our podcast that we, Somewhat it's a journey and you might have to start with us from the beginning where we were definitely amateurs just getting learning, learning how to do what we were doing, but that we really dive into the myths. So to read the story and then to hear our commentary on it, we, uh, you know, we put a lot into it and uh, I think we have a fun time with it. Yeah. And it's between two ravens, correct? That's right. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Yeah. But yeah, I've enjoyed talking to you today, Shane. You have a great rest of your uh, weekend. You as well. Thanks for coming on. Thanks. Take care. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Renaissance Wisdom Podcast, and hopefully you learned at least one lesson on today's episode. Our mission here is to uncover practical wisdom to create a better way of living for our audience. If you enjoyed this episode, please help us by leaving the show a review on your podcast platform of choice and by giving it a share on social media. This really helps us to grow our audience and to continue to add more episodes. If you are interested in learning more, please check out our website at renaissance-wisdom.com 
or check out the book that started it all, Renaissance Wisdom, How to Flourish in the Modern Day, now on Amazon. Thank you again, and may wisdom be your guide.